Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Moscow warns that the U.S. and Russia are on the brink of a direct war. So the Russian foreign ministry warned on Monday that Washington's policies have brought the U.S. and Russia to the brink of a direct clash. So Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova, she made these comments in response to a statement from Ned Price, who's the spokesman for the U.S. State Department. Price said last week that Russia was to blame for the deterioration of U.S.-Russia relations, but Zakharova uh, rejected that, and she said that the U.S. was at fault due to its goal of maintaining American hegemony while ignoring Russia's security concerns. She said, quote, this is a dangerous and short-sighted policy that puts the U.S. and Russia on the verge of a direct clash, end quote. Zakharova said that Russia was interested in reducing tensions with the U.S. and called on the Biden administration to avoid further escalation. She said, quote, for its part, Moscow urges the Joe Biden administration to soberly assess the situation and not to unleash a spiral of dangerous escalation. We hope that they will hear us in Washington, though there is no reason for optimism so far, end quote. So throughout the war, um, you know, more recently, more so in recent months, Russian officials have made it pretty clear that they believe they're not just at war with Ukrainian forces in Ukraine. They also view this war as a war against the U.S. and NATO. And Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, he recently said that the U.S. and NATO are directly participating in the war by providing weapons and training Ukrainian soldiers. And they're not just doing that. They're also providing intelligence for strikes against Russia and things like that. And, and they were also war gaming out, you know, preparing Ukraine for its counteroffensives. I mean, the U.S. and NATO are just so intimately involved in this war in so many ways. And the U.S. and NATO, they continue to escalate their role in the war. And the U.S. is planning to give Ukraine new weapons, possibly it looks like the Patriot missile systems. And is the U.S. is also planning to really increase the training of Ukrainian forces in Germany by more than double what uh, the capacity that they're training them at now. So that's another significant escalation. And uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jen Soltenberg, he acknowledged earlier this month that the current policy could lead to a full-blown war with Russia. But he said, despite this risk, the alliance must continue supporting Ukraine. Um, so just the fact that, you know, you have the head of NATO recognizing the danger. And of course, we all know a war between the U.S. and Russia. That means World War III. And that means nuclear war. Um, but they're still just supporting these reckless policies that are bringing us to the brink of that. In the next article here, uh, Russia says that the Russian military shot down a U.S.-made missile over Western Russia. So the Russian Defense Ministry on Monday said that four U.S.-made 
AGM-88 Harm anti-radar missiles were intercepted over Belgorod, which is an oblast in western Russia that borders Ukraine. It's a region that has come under uh, a lot of shelling throughout the war. Uh, Just yesterday, I went over that on Sunday, there was Ukrainian shelling there, and the the governor of Belgorod said that one person was killed. Um, So these harm missiles, these anti-radar missiles, are air-to-surface missiles that are designed to home in on electronic signals emitted by radar systems. And the Pentagon revealed back in August that it began providing Ukraine with these missiles, and they can be fired by Ukrainian aircraft, planes, or helicopters. And this was something that, you know, the Pentagon didn't initially announce that they sent to Ukraine. There was reports of it in, in, in Russian media. They were taking pictures of the debris of these missiles. And then the Pentagon said, yeah, yeah, we've been sending them those. And then I think I've seen it in some of the new recent aid packages. Um, so, but anyway, a Russian defense ministry spokesman said that uh, these American, four of these missiles were shot down. and. Again, we've seen a lot of attacks in Belgorod. I haven't really seen Russia claim that Ukraine was launching these attacks with U.S.-provided weapons, but now we see this report surface. And Belgorod, um, again, I'm oh, sorry, I was just going to repeat myself there that it's come under attack recently. But so this week's attacks on Belgorod, it comes after the, the that Times report that I've discussed a lot that said the Pentagon has given Ukraine its tacit endorsement of strikes on Russian territory, which risks a major escalation of the war. And publicly, Biden administration officials have recently said that Ukraine could use U.S.-provided weapons however they want. And that's something, you know, I didn't see until recently. And, you know, they're kind of acting like it's not a change in policy, but I believe it is because, again, when the U.S. first gave Ukraine the high Mars rocket launch systems, they said, you know, don't use these on Russian territory. And they said that they got assurances that they wouldn't. Why? Because they fear escalation. And now all of a sudden they don't fear that escalation. And, and their whole reasoning is based on the fact that up to this point, Russia has not responded with nuclear weapons or, or by attacking a NATO country. So, um, you know, I just, I know I've been kind of hammering this point a lot lately, but I think it's really important. I mean, this is kind of the recklessness that, that we're dealing with. Uh, so again, this isn't confirmed that it was, you know, U.S. harms missiles that were fired at, at Belgorod on Monday, but Russia is claiming it. And again, I haven't seen them say this. I could have missed it, you know, because there have been a lot of attacks in this region, but I haven't seen them explicitly say that a U.S. weapon was used to attack this this region. So it could this could mean another escalation. All right, the next article here, Russia and Belarus agree to strengthen cooperation. So Vladimir Putin, the Russian president on Monday, he visited Minsk, the uh, capital of Belarus, for the first time since 2019 to meet with Belarusian president Alexander Lukashenko. And the two leaders agreed to strengthen military and economic cooperation. Putin said that Moscow and Minsk would continue their joint military drills, which have increased since October when Russia deployed a force of about 9,000 troops to Belarus to help secure the country's border. Um, Lukashenko back in October was saying that there were threats at the Ukrainian border, and then Russia went ahead and deployed this force. And Putin said that joint military planning is ongoing. 
they're going to continue these drills and increase cooperation. So Lukashenko, he allowed Putin to launch a part of his initial invasion of Ukraine from Belarusian territory. That's where they launched the uh, part of the invasion that went towards Kiev in, in the north there. But so far, Bel Belarus has stayed out, has not entered the fighting. Belarusian forces have not, um, you know, entered Ukraine. And Putin's trip to Minsk stirred rumors that Russia was looking to bring Belarus into the war. That's what you saw all over Western media. That's what Ukrainian officials were saying. But the Kremlin rejected the idea. They called that speculation groundless fabrication. Um, you know, I guess there's always a chance that Belarus could enter the war. But right now, there's no indication that that's what's happening here. And also, I don't think that would require, you know, kind of opening another front because after they withdrew from the areas near Kiev, um, you know, they totally pulled out of the, the north there. So if, if Belarus did enter the war, you know, probably wouldn't be on their own. They would probably go in there with Russian troops. And I don't think right now, I mean, who knows, but I don't think that the Russians would want to open another front at this point. Um, so Lukashenko, you know, he, part of the reason that I think Belarus allowed Russia to launch the invasion from its territory is because Lukashenko drew much closer to Putin in recent years after the U.S. and the EU rejected the results of the 2020 Belarusian election, which saw Lukashenko win another term. So after the election, the U.S. and the EU, they threw their support behind Lukashenko's opposition. The opposition leader, I forget her name. I think she's exiled. She's in one of the Baltic states and, you know, said that they support the protesters and they started imposing more sanctions on Belarus. So that naturally, as we see countless examples of this, you know, drew Belarus and Russia closer together. Now, I can't say for sure that if it wasn't for that, that. Belarus wouldn't have let Russia invade Ukraine from its territory, but that definitely made it more likely of a possibility. Um, so for its role in allowing you know, Russia to, to launch the invasion from its territory, Belarus has also been targeted by the same sanctions that Russia has been hit with uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. And Putin said that the two countries were working together to counter Western sanctions. He said, quote, we are countering together the sanction pressure from unfriendly states and attempts to isolate Russia and Belarus on global markets. We are coordinating steps to mitigate the impact of unlawful restrictive measures on the economy of our countries. We are doing this fairly, confidently, and efficiently, end quote. <clears throat> so Putin has previously said that Western sanctions have sped up what they call the unification process of Russia and Belarus, as they are working now to implement a 1997 integration treaty. So under this treaty that Russia and Belarus signed back in 97, known as the Union State, uh, Russia and Belarus would integrate more. Uh, they would remain separate sovereign states, but their people would be able to get citizenship, you know, Belarusians in Russia and Russians in Belarus. So they would be able to travel. They'll be able to travel freely over the border when this is all implemented. Um, I'm not sure if they're there yet when it comes to the citizenship, but they're also looking at other ways to integrate. And, you know, they signed this treaty in 97 and it was kind of uh, put on hold for a while. But now, again, since they're facing this common pressure from the West, it's really speeding it up. 
And Lukashenko, he said on Monday that Russia and Belarus have made significant progress on almost all of the union state projects, the things that they want to do to make this happen. But he did say that there is uh, still a lot more work to do. So if you see the Russian and Belarusian statements together, they they refer to the western border of the union state, you know, saying that it's under threat from Ukraine. And that's referring to Belarus, the Belarusian border. Okay, so the next article here, shifting over to China, House Republicans to pressure Biden on China with a new panel. So Republicans are forming a committee on China for when the GOP takes control of the House this January. And this panel is going to pressure the Biden administration to be more hawkish on China. As things are now, Biden has pursued a very hardline policy against China by... just a few examples here. He's maintained all of Trump's tariffs and he's ramped up the trade war and the economic pressure through sanctions, through some pretty serious sanctions on China's semiconductor industry. You know, he's taking steps to increase support for Taiwan. He said that he would come to defend Taiwan if China attacked. And he's working to build alliances against China in the Asia Pacific. And his administration has made very clear that countering China is its top priority, but Republicans are going to likely going to push Biden to be even tougher. Uh, Mike Gallagher, he's uh, the Republican House representative from Wisconsin, and he has been chosen to to head this new China panel. It's going to be called the Select Committee on China. He told CNN on Sunday that he views China's Communist Party as an enemy of the United States. And announcing Gallagher as the leader of the new committee, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, and he's presumed to be the next House Speaker, he called China the greatest geopolitical threat of our lifetime. So it's a little more hyperbolic than the rhetoric. You know, you see the Biden administration call China, you know, the greatest, most consequential geopolitical challenge. And the Republicans make it a little more hyperbolic by saying they're they're calling them a threat. Uh, The Pentagon used to call them a threat, but they kind of toned down the language and they call them a challenge now. Uh, But anyway, but one of Gallagher's first priorities is likely going to be trying to ban TikTok, which is, as most people know, is the popular video sharing app. And it's owned by a Chinese company, uh, ByteDance. And the allegation is that because ByteDance is a Chinese company, it's obligated to share user data data with the Chinese government and can be used as a spying tool, similar to how the FBI and NSA have backdoor access to Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and all sorts of other U.S. tech platforms. And this was revealed by, you know, the the leaks. that Edward Snowden uh, released. Uh, that's the PRISM program. And, you know, this is just what we know about. So when you think of U.S. Um, intelligence, the access that they probably have to our phones and, and apps, it's, it's you know, kind of scary to think about. But anyway, they're concerned about China having this access, of course. But for their part, ByteDance insists that its, its data is safe from China since it's stored in the U.S. So who knows exactly what the situation is there. And, you know, the talking point is that they are targeting American children with this, you know, Chinese spy technology. But Gallagher admitted on Sunday that he said, we don't know that if 
if the Chinese government is using TikTok to harm American children. He said, we don't know for sure, but it should be banned anyway. And a bill to ban TikTok from U.S. government devices has passed through the Senate, but Republicans are looking to ban the app altogether. Um, so the, that bill would would not allow U.S. government employees to download TikTok on their phones. Um, and another priority of Republicans is going to be to ensure that the Biden administration is enforcing sanctions on China. The administration enacted major export controls targeting China's semiconductor industry in October, which I just mentioned. And I need to kind of dig more into this because I used to really cl closely follow the U.S. economic measures against China. But then with the war in Ukraine, it's just been so much for me to keep up with that I kind of slacked on it. Um, to, but from what I understand, these sanctions on China's chip industry are pretty major. Um, and it's a real step towards economic decoupling, which would still take years and years because, of course, the U.S. and Chinese economies are so intertwined. But they are moving in that direction. So under these sanctions, they're really export controls. American companies can't sell certain things to China, so, so they can't build these more advanced uh, microchips. But the, under these policies, exemptions are allowed and U.S. companies can apply for exemptions to be issued licenses to sell to these Chinese companies. And Republicans are going to make sure that that process is as strict as possible. You know, they don't want to give Biden any leeway when it comes to his tough China policy. So we should expect tensions to grow with China, with the Republicans taking over the House even more than they are now. All right, the next one here, speaking of U.S. intelligence agencies and social media, uh, this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute, and it's about the Twitter files uh, and how the FBI pushed Twitter to suppress, suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story and that they actually paid the company uh, millions of dollars. So I haven't been following the Twitter files close, too closely. I kind of have a hard time reading like a Twitter thread. My attention span is just doesn't exist when I'm on Twitter, but I think it is important because it shows how the FBI uh, was really trying to control and censor people and 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 control the information that Americans were getting. So it's it has huge implications for you know the First Amendment and issues like that. So uh, the I'm just going to read what Kyle wrote. The intelligence community worked to ensure that Twitter would quash the New York Post's report on Hunter Biden's laptop. New internal documents released by Twitter show the company received over $3 million from the FBI in the run-up to the 2020 election. So this is Twitter Files Part 7. These were released by Michael Schellenberger, who I'm not sure who that is, but I know Matt Taibbi has done a few, and the one that he did just before this, more stuff about how involved the FBI is with, how, how involved the FBI was with Twitter, um, really uh, is pretty amazing. I mean, because this is pretty obvious, you know, we knew that there was something like this going behind the scene, going on behind the scenes, but just very involved. So one of the goals of the FBI's campaign was to censor content on the platform. High ranking Twitter employees attended, attended conferences with representatives from the intelligence community. And at the meetings, the executives were primed to believe Russia would use the platform to influence the 2020 elections. However, the documents released by Schellenberger show Twitter repeatedly told the FBI that they have no evidence of Russian interference. And this is big, has implications for Russiagate, uh, which, you know, was always clearly 
uh, a lot of nonsense made up by the intelligence agencies. And here we have, you know, all these warnings. I remember around this time of, of Russia trying to interfere and Twitter saying, mm, we don't really have the evidence of that. Um, so after the New York the New York Post dropped the Hunter Biden laptop story, Twitter officials concluded that the story did not violate the platform's policies. But one employee, James Baker, who previously worked at the FBI, pushed the company to determine that the Hunter Biden emails were hacked. Baker lacked proof of the assertion, and it was later confirmed that the emails were authentic and not stolen. So Twitter, if you remember that story, Twitter would pro prohibited users from even sharing a link to the article um, via direct messages. And the story exposed corruption within the Biden family. It was the October surprise. It was October 2020, the, and it got quashed by Twitter, and it's revealed that the FBI played a pretty big role in it. Um, all right. So the next article here, uh, oh, we just left up the one from yesterday about the airstrikes in Somalia, just because it just gets such little attention, um, that I think, you know, I hope more people come across that article. Uh, but the last news story we have here, Israeli airstrikes hit targets near Damascus, two Syrian soldiers wounded. So this was reported by Sir the Syrian news agency, uh, Sanaa. And they said that Israeli airstrikes hit targets near the Syrian capital of Damascus on Monday night, and two Syrian soldiers were wounded in the strikes. The report said that some missiles were intercepted and that the strikes caused some damage, but they didn't specify what the targets were. It said that the Israeli Air Force launched the airstrikes from over the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. According to the Times of Israel, um, there were videos on social media that Israelis filmed showing the Israeli Air Force, Force jets flying over northern Israel around the time of the strikes. So Israel frequently bombs Syria, as I often cover, but they rarely comment on the operations in, in Syria, and they have not acknowledged Monday night's airstrikes. That's pretty typical that Israel doesn't comment. Um, so... Earlier this month, Israeli airstrikes were reported in southern Syria, although those ones were not confirmed by Syrian media. But a few hours after the reports, the Israeli Air Force dropped threatening leaflets in that area of Syria, saying, warning the, the Syrian military against cooperation with Hezbollah. And then last week, the head of the IDF said that Israel was responsible for bombing a truck convoy in November that was entering Syria from Iraq. And that was a rare acknowledgement of an individual airstrike in Syria. Um, so they do come out, Israeli military leaders discuss their operations in Syria and say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, we've hit them hundreds of times. But they just don't comment on specific strikes usually. And they always frame these operations as being against Iran and Hezbollah. But as uh, was the case with, with Monday night's airstrikes, they often kill or injure Syrian soldiers sometimes civilians, and they often damage civilian infrastructure, recently targeted the Aleppo and Damascus International Airports. So, um, you know, this is part of the siege on Syria that the U.S. and Israel are both responsible for because with the U.S. you have the economic siege, the economic embargo with the sanctions, and they also occupy about a third of the country by backing the Kurdish forces and keeping about 1,000 troops there. And that's where most of Syria's oil 
is, and that's also where most of their wheat resources are. So keeping very vital resources out of the Syrian government's hand, punishing Syrian civilian, civilians, depriving them of food. You know, it's really expensive for them to heat their homes in the winter. Syrian civilians are really suffering because of this policy. And then you have Israel bombing Syria, you know, every few weeks. It's a lot like the 1990s when the U.S. had Iraq under a no-fly zone with the sanctions, the economic pressure, and and the, and the bombings. Um, so it's a pretty similar situation. And I bet when it's all said and done that the U.S. government, we're going to find out, is responsible for a lot of dead, innocent Syrian civilians because of this policy, um, this economic warfare against them. And they do tacitly back these Israeli airstrikes. Uh, but that's it for me, for the for the news at least. Um, it's kind of slow. It's probably going to be a slow week with Christmas coming up. Um, and it's Hanukkah now, so happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, but anyway, um, we have uh, good viewpoints as always. The uh, We have one from Ron Paul about the Twitter files, and he says that the Twitter files make it clear that the U.S., that we must abolish the FBI. Um, so go check that out. He's a really great writer, Ron Paul. Uh, we have one from William J. Store about the mainstream media and the U.S. military, kind of how the, the military, um, the media is, is uh, basically just prints whatever the military and the government wants them to. Uh, we have one from Doug Bandow about the U.S.-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty. Uh, he's asking if it's like being shackled to a corpse um, by having that security guarantee over there for the Philippines. Uh, Daniel Larison over at his Substack: threat inflation is the mind killer. Um, just how the U.S. is worrying about China and Africa and just threat inflation in general. Um, then our spotlight is from George O'Neill Jr. over at the American Conservative. He asks if this is winning, and he cites the death toll of Ukrainian troops. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, she, she's the EU Commission, EU European Commission president. She recently said that it was estimated that more than 20,000 civilians and 100,000 Ukrainian military personnel have died in the war. And then the European Commission, after backlash, later deleted these comments from, from the video uh, recordings of her address. And it's not clear exactly why, but it was definitely uh, likely a result from Ukrainian pressure because the, the casualty rate that Ukraine is putting out is, is much less. It's about 10,000, um, which is hard to believe. I think the 100,000 number is more, more correct. Um, but, you know, that... That goes against the narrative in the West that Ukraine is, is winning this thing. Uh, but that's it. That's all the news. Go check out the viewpoints. Go read the blog at antiwar.com. Uh, you could support us, antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, you could also support the show just by liking and subscribing and commenting and sharing it and leaving reviews and all that good stuff. I really appreciate it. We get a lot of engagement on the YouTube channel, a lot of comments, which I appreciate. I always like feedback, um, you know. Just want to know how people are liking the show. Um, but that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.